Good morning. Good to see you all. It's good to open God's Word with you together that we might hear from Him. We are continuing our sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we are in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 12, verse 37. It's a big passage. It's a lot to take in. Last Sunday, we arrived at the final week in the life of Jesus, and we saw how Jesus arrived in the city of Jerusalem with a lot of fanfare. There were many people who were excited for his arrival, and they had hopes and expectations regarding what was going to take place with Jesus when he arrived in Jerusalem. And during his final week, he spent time at the temple in Jerusalem. And the backdrop of his final week in Jerusalem at the temple was this conflict with the temple authorities called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the official Jewish leadership made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. The Jewish people, of course, were living under Roman rule at the time, but their Roman overlords gave the Sanhedrin some latitude in regard to matters concerning the Jewish people. The 71-member Sanhedrin functioned as a buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish nation. Among the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin had nearly complete religious authority as well as limited political authority. The Jewish people looked to them for leadership. They looked to them for direction. They looked to them for instruction especially in regard to worshiping the Lord and how they were to live their lives as God's people and how they were to worship Him in the right way. You might think that the Sanhedrin would be the group of people who were most likely to be the first to recognize the Messiah when He arrived. God had promised this Messiah would come The Messiah being an anointed king, God's anointed king. You might think they were the ones who were the most equipped to recognize him, to receive him, and to point other people to him. But sadly, that was not the case. Instead, the Sanhedrin responded poorly when the Messiah arrived. Of course, Jesus is the Messiah. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, they responded to him with hostility and unbelief. They were the last ones to recognize Jesus for who he is. And so there was hostility. There was conflict between Jesus, the Messiah, and this Jewish religious leadership called the Sanhedrin. And we're going to see that in our passage this morning. I'm going to begin reading in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? 
But shall we say, from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, he, uh, him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are a true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And after the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself 
is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Our passage breaks up into six interactions, and we're going to take a brief look at each of the interactions to see what we can come to understand from them. We see the first interaction in verses 27 through 33. Jesus was walking in the temple, and he was approached by a delegation sent from the Sanhedrin. The delegation included Pharisees, chief priests, and elders. And it's important to understand that this was an official delegation. This was not a casual or friendly group of people who were looking to engage in meaningful dialogue with Jesus. They did not come seeking understanding. No, this was more along the lines of an, uh, an official investigation. The delegation was concerned with authority, in particular, the authority Jesus claimed for himself. They asked, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? But what did they mean when they referred to these things? Well, throughout his ministry, Jesus had exercised and demonstrated unique authority. He demonstrated unique authority in his teaching. He demonstrated unique authority in the way he would cast out demons. He demonstrated his authority over sickness and illness and even death. He demonstrated authority by forgiving sins. And shortly before our passage this morning, he demonstrated his authority by clearing the temple. And when the Sanhedrin said, by what authority do you do these things, they were probably referring to what he had done most uh, recently in teaching as though he was um, an authority figure and clearing the temple. But when they asked him this, they were asking in an accusatory and condescending way. They were saying, by what authority do you do these things? As if, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do this? The, the Sanhedrin had authority over the Jews, and they relished their authority. They enjoyed their privileged position among the people, and they rightly perceived that Jesus was a threat to their authority. Jesus was a threat to their authority because he was drawing large crowds of people. Word had spread about Jesus. They had heard and seen his miracles, and they were listening to his teaching. He had become very popular, and his teaching undermined the authority of the Sanhedrin. And so they did not appreciate this. And so they asked him this question, in a condescending way, and ultimately they were seeking to undermine him. Jesus knew what they were attempting to do, so he countered with a question. He said, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It seemed like a simple question. We read about John at the beginning of Mark's gospel. We read about how his ministry was a fulfillment of what was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. He appeared in the wilderness and proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
He was very popular among the Jewish people as many people from Judea and Jerusalem came out to see him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. He was held in high regard. The people believed him to be a prophet sent from God. He spoke of one who would come after him, who was mightier than him, who would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus came and was baptized by John, and something extraordinary happened. When he came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open, and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So when Jesus asked the delegation from the Sanhedrin about the baptism of John, it was not actually a simple question. It was a loaded question. James Edwards writes, the question about John the Baptist seems at first glance to be either irrelevant or evasive. What does John's baptism have to do with Jesus' authority? Jesus' counter question about John often strikes readers as a diversionary tactic, like a raccoon jumping into a stream to shake the hounds from its scent. Ironically, the counter question contains the seeds of the truth that the Sanhedrin hopes to learn. For it was at the baptism by John that the heavens were parted, the spirit of power descended into Jesus, and the voice from heaven declared him God's son. A decision about John is a decision about Jesus. If John's baptism were solely from men, then the Sanhedrin may be justified in its accusation of Jesus. But if John's baptism was from heaven, that is divinely inspired, as the crowds believed, And as the Sanhedrin evidently feared, then Jesus' authority exceeds mere human authority and must be explained by the authority of God. So the delegation from the Sanhedrin was reluctant to answer the question. And so they huddled up. But when they huddled up, they were not discussing amongst themselves how they could answer truthfully and honestly. They were trying to devise a strategy regarding the best way they could answer this question and save their own skin. You see, they knew that if they were to say, well, John's baptism was not from God, it was just from men, then they would lose favor among the people. The people held John in high regard. They believed him to be a prophet. It's as if they did some internal polling and and decided if we answer this way, The people are not going to like us. So they didn't want to say that his baptism was from men because then they would become unpopular among the people. But if they said his baptism is from God, that would put them in a very bad spot because they did not treat John as though he had come from God. They did not receive him as a prophet. They did not support and affirm his ministry. So they were in a tough spot. They couldn't give an answer that would have them coming out looking good. And so they dodged the question. They said, we don't know. Which I don't think is true in the sense that I'm sure they had an opinion. I'm sure they could have given their truthful opinion, but instead they were cowards and they said, we don't know. They were unwilling to answer honestly and face the consequences. So Jesus said, if you're unwilling to answer my question, then I'm not going to answer yours. We have seen throughout the Gospel of Mark that Jesus 
rewarded those who approached him in faith. He even rewarded people who approached him in humility but lacked faith. He rewarded those who approached him with sincerity. He rewarded them. He blessed them. He revealed himself to them. But he did not reward those who came to him with hostility, with unbelief. The Sanhedrin did not approach him in faith, nor did they approach him in humility or with sincerity. Therefore, Jesus would not answer their questions or reveal himself to them any further. This is a good reminder for us of how we are to approach Jesus. When we approach him in faith, when we approach him in humility, expressing our need for him, expressing our need for his help, his power, when we come to him in sincerity, admitting our own faults and sins, when we come to them in this way, he rewards us. He is eager to bless those who come to him in faith with humility in sincerity. But he does not reward those who come to him with pride and arrogance or his hostility. The next interaction was a parable that Jesus told those who were around him, including the delegation that was sent from the Sanhedrin. He told this parable about a man who planted a vineyard and then he rented it out to tenants and went to a different country. He sent a servant to go collect what was rightfully his from the tenants, but they treated his servant shamefully. And this happened repeatedly. They even killed his servants. Eventually said, well, I'm going to send my son. Uh, they, they, at least they will respect my son. But the tenants did not even respect his son. Instead, they killed the son. And Jesus says, what do you think is going to happen to these tenants? Do you think it's going to go well for them? Do you think it's going to go well for these tenants who treated the servants shamefully and killed the owner's son? Of course not. That's ridiculous. It's going to go poorly for them. They are going to be destroyed, and the vineyard will be given to others. The religious leaders perceived that Jesus was telling the parable against them, and they were right. In Isaiah chapter 5, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah told the parable whereby he described the Lord's people as a vineyard. In Jesus' parable here in Mark 12, the judgment was not on the vineyard, but on those who were meant to tend the vineyard. In other words, the parable was not a judgment of the entire Jewish people. The parable was primarily an indictment on the religious leadership in Israel. Jesus was comparing the religious leadership in Israel, the Sanhedrin, with those tenants who treated the servants shamefully and eventually killed the son. He was saying, you religious leaders are treating the servants of God, the prophets, shamefully, and you're going to kill the son of God. Jesus said their rejection of him was a fulfillment of what we read in Psalm 118, verse 22, which says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So how did the religious leaders respond to this parable? Were they cut to the heart? Were they convicted of their sin? Were they brought to repentance? Did they humble themselves and say, Oh no, he's right, we are guilty. We are guilty of treating God's servants shamefully. We have failed to receive God's Son. Did they humble themselves and repent? No. 
we read that they sought to arrest Jesus. They literally confirmed what Jesus had just said in the parable. Jesus told this parable, and they decided they were going to go and fulfill what he said in the parable. The third interaction arose when the Pharisees and Herodians teamed up to trap Jesus. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians were an unlikely team. The reason that they were an unlikely team is because the Herodians supported Herod and his ways and what he was trying to accomplish, and the Pharisees did not support Herod and his ways and what he was trying to accomplish. But despite their differences, despite they had strong convictions that were different from each other, they found a common purpose in opposing Jesus. And so they were willing to come together in opposition to him. And we were reminded that Jesus faced hostile opposition from a variety of fronts. And when the Pharisees and Herodians approached Jesus, they asked him an explosive question, one they thought would get him in trouble regardless of how he answered. They wanted to undermine Jesus, or better yet, get him in trouble with the authorities. They thought his, his answer to this question would either undermine him with the Jewish people, and he would not be as popular as he once was, or it would get him in trouble with the Roman government, and he would face severe consequences. They said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? In their minds, this was a gotcha question. It was a lose-lose situation for Jesus. On the one hand, the Jewish people did not appreciate their Roman overlords. After all, they were God's people. They worshiped the one true and living God, and here they were living under the authority of a pagan government that promoted and encouraged the worship of false gods. Of course they would be happy if Jesus said, stick it to the government, stick it to the Roman government. That would have been a popular message with these people who did not like living under the pagan Roman government. And this was his chance. This was his chance, uh, chance to call down judgment on the Roman government. Because what would they do to him? What could they do to him if he did something that they perceived was uh, causing an insurrection? Crucify him? He already knew that was going to happen. This was his opportunity to pronounce judgment on this pagan government. After all, this government was on the verge of committing the single greatest injustice in the history of the world in a matter of days. But he doesn't take the bait. So on the one hand, if he says, don't pay your taxes, it makes a lot of the Jewish people happy. Or on the other hand, if he says, uh, pay your taxes, it doesn't make them happy. But if he says, don't pay your taxes, it could get in trouble with Roman government. This is the hypocrisy of those asking the questions. But Jesus wasn't intimidated, and he didn't back down. Instead, he gave an answer that both affirmed God's sovereign rule as well as the legitimacy of human government. It's funny because Jesus says, give me a coin. He didn't have one of the coins, but they did. His, his accusers were questioning him like, okay, we got one, there you go. So he takes it, looks at it, says, whose inscription? They say it's Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar's what Caesar's, give to God what is God's. He spoke about the legitimacy of human government, the need to respect government, and in their case, even a pagan government. But he still affirmed that God 
is the sovereign ruler over everyone and everything. And we must give to, God's, give to God what is God's. What do we owe God? Everything. Our complete loyalty and allegiance, our very lives. So while simultaneously affirm the legitimacy of human government, but affirm the fact that God is ultimately the ruler over everyone that everyone must answer to. And we read that the people marveled at his response. Next up were the Sadducees. The challenges kept coming. The Sadducees were the faction within the Jewish leadership who did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. This was a point of disagreement within the Sanhedrin. So the the, uh, Sadducees thought they could undermine Jesus by demonstrating that his belief in the resurrection was an unbiblical belief. They came up with a question that they believed would show the error of his beliefs. They came up with this hypothetical question, and it was centered on a law from the law of Moses, which is referred to as the Leverite marriage, which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And in this law, we read that if a man is married but dies without having an heir, that his brother must marry his widow, have children, and the first child, uh, child would be considered an heir of the deceased brother. And the purpose of the law was to ensure that a man who died before he had produced a male heir might still have an heir so that his name would not be blotted out of Israel. So they present this hypothetical scenario. Oh, there was this guy. He got married. No kids. His brother then uh, married her. No kids. Then another brother. Another brother. There were seven brothers. Not one of them had a kid in the resurrection. Then who gets to have her as a wife? They present this hypothetical situation about this conundrum that would take place in heaven if, if the people obeyed the Levitical law in Deuteronomy chapter 25. They're saying, look, there's going to be this situation. It's going to be family dysfunction in heaven. How are you going to deal with this in the resurrection? It's almost as if they thought that this would stump Jesus. Like He'd be like, oh, I haven't thought about that. That would be a problem. I guess there's no resurrection. The resurrection's off, everybody. But of course, Jesus was not stumped. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God? Do you see how he did not mince words? He says to men who believe themselves to be the experts in the scriptures, You don't know the scriptures. You're wrong. Neither do you understand the power of God. And the reason they don't understand the power of God is because God is going to do something extraordinary and powerful in the resurrection. Jesus explained that in our resurrected state, we are not married or given in marriage. Now you might hear that and think, oh, when we go to heaven, we are going to lose something. We are not married or given in marriage. We're going to lose something when we, when we go to heaven. What Jesus is teaching is that, no, we are not going to lose something. We are going to gain something. As good as marriage is here and now, we are going to experience and enjoy something far better in the new heavens and the new earth. We will not be married or given in marriage, so their little hypothetical problem will not actually be a problem because God in his power is going to transform us and we are going to enjoy lives in a completely better way. 
Edwards wrote, present earthly experience is entirely insufficient to forecast divine heavenly realities. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero can imagine the Grand Canyon at sunset. He's saying what awaits us is so much better than our present life on this earth in its present form. You Sadducees, you're wrong because you're just comparing heaven to now. But you don't understand that God is powerful and he is going to transform us. And he's going to transform the earth. We're going to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth and a new existence that's going to far exceed anything we experience here and now. He said the resurrection will happen and it's going to be awesome. And thank God that the resurrection is true. Thank God that the Sadducees are wrong. See, Jesus promised us a future with him in the new heavens and the new earth that we will enjoy for all eternity with resurrected bodies. We are going to enjoy a glorious kingdom that will be immeasurably better than the best things this world has to offer. The Sadducees were wrong, and Jesus went on to demonstrate how they were wrong. He referred to the event where Yahweh appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And what did Yahweh say to Moses? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He did not say, I was the God when they were alive, but they're dead now. Even though they had died, he didn't say, I was. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why is it that he continues to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even after they died? It's because of the resurrection. So Jesus says, you are wrong in your interpretation and understanding of Scripture. In the next interaction, Jesus is approached by a scribe who asks a question regarding the law of Moses. He wanted to know which commandment of all the commandments was the greatest. This was probably the easiest question Jesus was asked all day. This was the equivalent of an underhand pitch. He answered by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, and said, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The first and greatest commandment is to love God with our entire being. We are called as followers of Jesus to love God more than anyone or anything else in the world. When we sin, we are always breaking that first commandment. You cannot sin without breaking the first commandment to love God with your entire being because when you are loving God with your entire being, you will not sin against him. But Jesus quickly followed up by quoting Leviticus 19.18 when he said, The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quickly linked loving God with loving others. This is the heart of discipleship. We love God more than anyone or anything else in the world, and we love others. The outworking of discipleship is growing in your love for the Lord and your love for your neighbors. This is to define who we are as followers of Jesus. Jesus said this sums up the entirety of the law. Now when you read through the law in the Old Testament, you will find there are over 600
hundred commands given in the law. And Jesus is saying, all those commands that are given, every single law is an outworking of these two commands, to love God and love your neighbor. All these are commands are given so that you can practically live out these two great commands, to love God and love your neighbor. The law is summed up in those two commands. Unlike the other interactions, this one ended fairly positively. The scribe is like, you're right! Which I'm sure Jesus appreciated his approval, right? Like he needed it. But he's like, you're right, you answered correctly, you're, you know, you're wise. And, and Jesus responded positively to him. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And the final interaction is a brief teaching where Jesus challenges a common belief among the Jews during that time. He specifically called out the scribes and challenged their understanding and teaching of the Messiah or the Christ. The Jews believed that the Messiah, meaning God's anointed king, would be a descendant of David. And of course, it, is tr it was true that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but Jesus was showing them that he would not merely be a descendant of David, and that he would not merely be an extension of David's reign. So he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared then Jesus quoted Psalm 110.36, which reads, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In that verse, the first use of the word Lord refers to Yahweh. And the second use refers to the king. So another way of saying this verse would be, Yahweh said to my king, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In Israel, the verse was originally understood to mean God and the king of Israel. But with the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel's monarchy in 586 BC, the verse was understood to refer to the Messiah whose kingdom would not fail as the Davidic monarchy had failed. So Jesus was saying, if David, who wrote Psalm 110, was saying my God said to my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, then David was acknowledging that the Messiah would be greater than him. His point was this, the Christ, God's anointed king, who was a descendant of David, would in fact be greater than David. So Jesus finished by saying, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Why would David refer to one of his sons as my Lord? Jesus did not answer that question explicitly, but what he was pointing to was the fact that the Messiah was not merely David's son, but also God's son. Jesus was revealing something significant regarding the identity of the Messiah, something significant about himself. You see, what the people failed to understand, that the Messiah would not merely be a human king, but he would also be the Son of God. Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David, was also the Son of God. 
That is what they failed to understand. That was what he was revealing about himself, about the identity of the Messiah. The Messiah would come as a God-man in order to save God's people. And so he was opening up their eyes to understand what Scripture teaches. And what he was pointing to really answers the question that began our passage. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? The answer is God. God did. Because Jesus, the Messiah, came not only as a son of David, but also as the son of God. As I said in the beginning, there is so much for us to gain from each of the interactions we've studied this morning. But the backdrop behind all these interactions is a struggle or a battle over authority. On the one hand, we see Jesus demonstrating his authority, and on the other hand, we see how the religious leadership in Israel rejected his authority. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had demonstrated his divine authority in many ways. And here in our passage, Jesus demonstrated his authority in the way he handled the scriptures. He taught the scriptures as though he was the author of the scriptures. He didn't appeal to other teachers to establish the truthfulness of his teaching. He didn't say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, therefore it must be true. He said, I tell you this, therefore it is true. I interpret the scripture this way, therefore that is the correct interpretation of the scriptures. Jesus spoke as though he was the author of scriptures. He spoke as the one who had the authority to rightly interpret and apply the scriptures. But the religious leadership in Israel was not prepared to receive him. What they were concerned about was their authority. Jesus posed a threat to their authority and they were unwilling to recognize and submit to his authority. The conflict with the Sanhedrin reminds us that when any person comes to Jesus, he or she must relinquish authority and submit to his authority. The question I have for you is this. Do you understand that Jesus poses a threat to your authority? What do I mean by that? In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall of humanity into sin. The first two human beings, Adam and Eve, were given a good command by God, who was their creator and their king. They were told they could eat from every tree except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was their king. They were his people. They were called to submit to his good and loving authority. Instead, they decided to rebel against his authority. They decided they wanted to exercise authority themselves for their own lives and their own decisions. They wanted to be the ones to decide what was good and evil. Instead of uh, responding to him as their king, they wanted to take the seat of king of their own lives. They rebelled against God as their king and sought to be their own king. And ever since then, humanity has rebelled against God's authority over us. Our sin is a rebellion against our creator and our king. Our sin 
is an attempt to take the seat of king over our own lives. Our sin is an attempt to exercise authority over our own lives. And we have seen that individual autonomy has become an idol in our country. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines individual autonomy in this way. Individual autonomy is an idea that is generally understood to refer to the capacity to be one's own person, to live one's life according to reasons and motives that are taken as one's own and not the product of manipulative or distorting external forces to be in this way independent. Friends, coming to Jesus means giving up our individual autonomy. Coming to Jesus means coming under his authority. Coming to Jesus means we give up acting as the kings of our own lives and submit ourselves to the true king. Earlier in Mark's gospel, in chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said that coming to him involves a complete denial of the self. We must completely deny ourselves and submit ourselves to him. That is what is required when we come to Jesus. We don't get to come to Jesus on our own terms. We don't get to come to Jesus and remain the king of our own lives. Coming to Jesus requires that we submit to him as our king. And here's the good news. Jesus does not commit, uh, command us to submit to his authority, authority so that he can rule over us with an iron fist. No, he is a benevolent king. And he would demonstrate that just a few days after what we read in our passage this morning. He would demonstrate that he is a benevolent king. The way that he used his authority was by coming to earth and subjecting himself to a violent death absorbing God's wrath on our behalf so that we could receive forgiveness for our rebellion against him and so that we could be reconciled and restored to our loving father. He used his authority for our good in the ultimate way. He laid down his life for us as a substitute, taking the punishment we deserve so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. That is the kind of king that he is. You see, Jesus does command us to submit to his authority when we come to him. But that is a good thing. He uses his authority for our good. Submitting to his authority is good for us. That is where we enjoy his love, his joy, and his peace. That is where we enjoy abundant life if you're not a christian we are glad that you're here and our greatest hope and prayer for you is that you will come to know and trust in jesus you see every single one of us is a sinner every single one of us has rebelled against god we're all guilty we all deserve hell if god were only to give us what we deserve we would all be in hell but god in his loving kindness has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and escape the hell that we deserve. And he did so by providing Jesus as a savior, a substitute for us. So now everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will be saved. If you're not a Christian, 
Let me ask you, do you want to receive the forgiveness of your sins? Do you want to be free from a guilty conscience? You see, our consciences bear witness against us that we are sinners. We all have guilty consciences, and the only hope to have a conscience free from guilt is through trusting in Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, we hope and pray that you will believe in Jesus and be saved. If you are a Christian, the challenge is this. Does your life reflect the fact that Jesus is your king? Does your life reflect the fact that you have submitted to his authority in your thoughts, in your attitudes, in your words, in your deeds? Does the entirety of your life reflect the fact that you have submitted yourself completely and utterly to him? When you do, your life will reflect his goodness. It will reflect his glory. You will show forth his love to this world. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, we want to ensure that we are completely and utterly submitting to him. We are not the kings of our lives. He is the king. We submit to him. We do as he says. And in so doing, we will demonstrate his goodness and glory to a watching world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Messiah, our King.